This podcast contains material that is intended for mature audiences and may not be suitable for all listeners. Enjoy. I don't want to get on the bandwagon. I'll burn that wagon down and join the band. Traveling troubadours terrorizing street corners just to try to get some supper in our hands. Now I waited all my life to get this off my chest screen, buddy murder until someone understands that it ain't about the money, the drugs, or the women. I make this noise just because I can. And we'll all join in to that original sin. So let's get rowdy and reckless. Let's get rowdy and reckless. Let's Hello and welcome to another edition of Old Man Strength, a podcast of the Tailgate Society and brought to you by Deadeye Barbecue Sauce, the best damn barbecue sauce in the known universe. You can find them on the web at deadeyebbq.com. Find us at thetailgatesociety.com as well as all the other Tailgate Society content. Chris, how are we doing this evening? We're doing as well as could be expected after a big blizzard and uh, 12 inches of snow and snow blowing and that fake wind chill that we talked about last time. <laughs> well, you had also talked previously about actually breaking down and getting a, a snow blower. Are you happy that you got to put this thing to a real test? Yes, I was super excited to see how fast and, <laughs> and wonderful it would work, although it didn't save me as many trips outside as having to do. I still had to go out there and use it three times, but at least I didn't feel like I was going to have a stroke later. <laughs> Which is always a plus, I think. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's. I was happy to see that that storm missed us. Now we'll get our opportunity here any day now. It, it is Minnesota. I fully expect to be in winter from anywhere until March 15th to June 15th. So I know it's coming, so I'm not going to talk too much trash. But I'm, I am happy to see that you guys are feeling a little bit of the same pain this year. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, we're never short of that. <laughs> well, well, wonderful. I'm glad that you're, you're surviving given all of that. It's certainly been uh, an interesting winter so far. Uh, thankfully, pretty mild, but uh, I'm still happy to, to uh, get this thing moving along and the fact that we're almost through January. I'm, I'm more than happy about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tonight we do have a special guest, and Chris, I'll go ahead and let you introduce our guest. Well, we are super excited and uh, <clears throat> very grateful to have uh, uh, Ken Miller, one of the godfathers of uh, sports radio in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, from KXNO and uh, the 10 to noon show, uh, Trent and with Trent Condit. Ken Miller, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Old Man Strength. Yeah, Chris, good to be here. Tim, nice to meet you, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to dive into some some uh, crazy stuff tonight and, and talk about a few things. Um, Ken Miller, uh, what, been in, in Des Moines Radio for, what, 20-some years now? Is, it, is that 25 right? In, uh, 25 in June. Uh, yeah. It's the 20, 24th of June uh, is when sports radio... It's crazy to think about, Chris, is with the explosion of all the stations throughout the years that have come and gone that on up until June the 24th of 1996, there was no full-time sports talk radio local uh, in Des Moines. 
Uh, and uh, the morning of the 24th, that all changed and it's been going strong uh, in, in Des Moines ever since. Absolutely. Ups and downs, ups and downs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll probably talk about some of those in a little bit. <laughs> no, it, it's good to see as someone who has not lived in, in central Iowa for coming up on, on two decades. I remember when kind of all of that hit. And it really felt like because there's so much going on in central Iowa sports that it wasn't an underserved market in the first place. Obviously, there's not major league teams, but you have a lot of of division one schools that have Mm -hmm. activity going on. You do have a lot of uh, farm systems for other major league teams. There's certainly a lot that you can talk about, as well as I think some probably underrated high school sports going on in, in central Iowa as well. No, in high school sports, um, it, it, to be honest, it, it in, in the beginning um, might've put us on the map, but where we're centrally located, it, it's especially now just coming out there at the end of the NFL season, approaching the Super Bowl. We're so fortunate to be right squarely in the middle, if you will, of the Kansas city chiefs, the Minnesota Vikings, the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears, and then flip that script to baseball season when, you know, it's if there is such a thing as a difficult time to talk sports, it's, you know, when Iowa, Iowa State, when their seasons are over, right? We, mm-hmm. we go from football into basketball, and then you have that little bit of a lull after spring football. And but that by the time you know it, July's here, and the college football magazines are coming out, and the hype's starting to get there. and you know, you're going to Dallas for Big 12 football media days or likewise to Chicago for Big 10 media days. And it, the, the circle just starts all over again. So it, it's a great market to be in uh, with the with the proximity to the uh, to the NFL and to Major League Baseball and having Iowa and Iowa State, the way that those two schools move the needle and the passionate fan bases that accompany them. Uh, it's a natural. But, you know, I go back to the beginning, guys, and there were studies from radio groups that didn't think sports radio would ever work in Des Moines, Iowa. There's just not a big enough market for that. And I think that those studies, whoever did them probably was located in a market like Chicago that had a couple of baseball teams an NBA, uh, an NHL and an NFL team. And they don't understand. I don't think the passion that Hawkeye fans and Cyclone fans and certainly Drake basketball fans have, or you and I fans have. So uh, this is a great market to talk sports. Absolutely. And, and the passion just between the, the college fan bases is at an all-time high now. And, and, and then uh, in the mid-90s, Dan McCarney was just starting to come on and having a good mm-hmm. team. So it was really started to get competitive between the two big schools as well. What, what were you doing before that, Ken? I, I know you were working at the, at the racetrack. Did you have any radio uh, gigs before that, or, or what were you doing before that? Well, um, I, yeah, so I came from, I immigrated from Canada in 1989. Um, I, was, I was a race caller at the track in Winnipeg, and Prairie Meadows had an opening, and they called me and asked me if I'd like to come and audition. And, I, of course, I wanted to. Uh, I thought it would be a stepping stone that I would be in Des Moines for a couple of years. But before long, I'd be calling the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs. That was the goal. Um, and I just 
to this day believe that I could have reached that goal had I chosen to pursue that path. But yeah, I'd done radio in Winnipeg uh, in the 80s. And in the early 90s, I moved to Denver when Prairie Meadows closed before the slots came in and it reopened. And it is what it is today. Uh, when the track closed in 1991, of course, there's no races. There's no need for a race caller. So I moved to Denver uh, and, and reopened a track in Denver that had been shuttered for a couple of years. And that was my first taste of sports talk radio. I'd never heard of it before until I moved there. And I met a guy, um, a guy by the name of Gil Whiteley, and I believe he's still doing talk radio on a small station uh, in Denver. And through an advertising arrangement, I sat down in front of him for, or sat down with him for a, a segment or so. And he invited me back and we got, I did this a couple of times with him and didn't know anything would come of it. Just enjoyed talking about the Denver Broncos who were my team. And then I was living in Denver. So that, uh, that was a pretty good relationship, but it was something that, um, you know, that I enjoyed listening to and I enjoyed dipping my toe in the water. And then when, you know, Terrell shows up in uh, in Iowa and he knocks on Prairie Meadows door for some advertising. Uh, a door opened up there and, um, you know, I walked through it and yeah, that was 1996. And we were pretty good. Uh, we had we had instant chemistry and that's what makes it. It's it's the chemistry you have with your partner, you know, knowing what they're going to say in some cases or being able for them to finish your sentence or you finish their sentence. If you have chemistry, if you can play off of each other, that goes a long way with the audience. And we had that. So that's how I got my start, uh, you know, back in 1996 when we launched Sports Talk Radio. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that about chemistry because I've been meaning to talk to Chris. I feel like uh, <laughs> things have gotten a little, no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's, that's, uh, kind of a, a different path. I didn't realize that you had done that, but now that I think about it, it does seem like I've noticed other guys calling races at racetracks are also sports radio personalities, certainly up here in Minnesota. Yeah, PA. Paul, yeah, PA Paul Allen is, is calling all the, uh, the races out at the track as well. Is that a, is that a thing? <laughs> is that no, I don't... people do? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it is, Tim. It's just, um, you know, Paul, uh, Paul's very good at it, by the way. I know him uh, quite well. Uh, he's a terrific race caller and he's a great rate, uh, sports talk radio host. I don't know if there are others that um, went down that path, but uh, PA in my careers in a lot of ways, except for the success part, hasn't quite struck me yet, but it certainly has PA. Um, and he's a great radio voice of the Vikings. Uh, KXNO carries the Vikings and you know, you can't turn on ESPN or the NFL Network when there's a Vikings moment and they usually find Paul Allen's call before they find the Fox call or whatever the network is because he's so good at it. So I don't know if there's a correlation there, Tim, or not, but certainly Paul and I uh, have a, uh, the same career trajectory. Yeah, you know, his call of the Minneapolis miracle a few mm -hmm. years back, I think, is going to be one of those calls that becomes iconic for decades and decades to come i think people are going to recognize that that voice certainly because that really got so much national attention too that one was kind of fun for sure i i i think i might have broken a finger uh by jumping up so hard with my hands in the air and i smashed them right into the ceiling 
quite a moment. It really was. And of course, his, his call of the, was it the 2009 NFC Championship in New Orleans where this is in Detroit or what is somewhere along those lines. Mm. Favre was the quarterback and he'd been beat up pretty badly that day. And that call of his got a lot of uh, play as well. Oh, absolutely. That, that yeah. was a very ugly, ugly game. <laughs> He does have some some iconic ones. It's hard to uh, it to for me. It would be really hard to um, not use bad language. Like that's, yeah. that's <laughs> you know what I mean. As a fan, I mean, I would imagine you are deeply invested as a as an announcer for that team when you're hired by that team. That it would be sure. really hard not to not to really so to be able to have that professionalism in those moments and whatever is is something I it, I would aspire to do, but just not possible for me because I dropped too many F-bombs. So, um, but, we've, you know. We've seen that on Twitter. Yes, Chris. yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm aware. I'm aware. So I was in a studio one day, Chris, as you'll recall, there were a number of F-bomb drops yes. uh, dropped as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of which, um, those early days in the jock, what was that? Um, I mean, at any point, did you, did you think, oh, man, I'm not even sure if this is going to work or – did you guys at the beginning start to think, man, we, we might really have something here and, 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 and creating a niche? Yeah, I, I, that, I, it very quickly it became um, apparent that this was something that was going to work. Um, and just, be, just because of the passion. And, and, and honestly, as I, as I go back, I wish we would have focused more. Like, I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to school at Iowa or Iowa State. I didn't. That this is the and I get to ask this periodically. You know the difference between Canada and the states, from my perspective, is is the passion that comes along with a Saturday at a football stadium. It's the passion you have for tailgating and then going to watch the clones, or when you make your way to Iowa City. And I never grasped that until I worked with a guy by the name of Bob Dyer. Uh, when the jock had moved from Indianola and we're back now, we're in Des Moines. Yeah. And I was working, I was doing mornings with Bob and I think Steve Dace was on, he was the afternoon show at the time. And he, he made it very clear to me that, you know, we, we could do an Iowa and Iowa State segment five days a week, 52 weeks a year. And I kind of questioned him a little bit and he looked at me, and said, you got to play the hits. This is radio. <laughs> and that's stuck with me ever since you have to play the hits. So you can find the most, you know, obscure innocuous topic in the middle of summer. Uh, you know, when maybe the clones or the Hawks are not um, in front of mind and, and bring something up and, and people turn their radios up because there's so much passion for those two schools. So um, it's, again, I keep going back to that point. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful market to do uh, to talk sports in. All, all you got to do is watch the the Twitter feeds of Iowa and Iowa State fans to know that sure. it's at a pitch level the entire year. I, it, it could be like to your point, the middle of July, and somebody throws a random thing out there, and you next thing you know, it's a three day binge of of hate. It's crazy Chris, to me. Chris, the rivalry is it's great for business <laughs> first and <laughs> foremost. It's wonderful for business, and the Cyhawk, the back and forth. I hate Cyhawk week because my neighbors, they're Hawkeye fans, they're Cyclone fans, and I'm Switzerland, right? I, I think that, you know, of all the people that have talked sports in the market, 
I'm the most neutral that's ever done it. I, I really root for both teams um, because I want their, I want Hawkeye fans to be happy, Cyclone fans to, to be happy. And I'm really glad for your fan base right now because you're experiencing or you're getting to experience what, you know, the Hawkeye football program, they've reached some goals that up until uh, recently have been unattainable, uh, unattainable for Iowa State. But it, it, it's great to see and you have to play them. And, and Chris, <laughs> get used to it, buddy. Buckle up because this, this oh, game man. in September – the hype around the game at Jack Trice Stadium for a top 10 Iowa State team, a 15 to 20 ranked Iowa football team, a team that Matt Campbell has yet to beat. He's been unable to knock off Kirk Ferentz since he's been at Iowa State. It's really the only box he's yet to check. This year is going to be the meter is going to be in the red zone from about August right until the time that the final gun sounds. Well, let me give you an insight into what it what it's going to be like for a fan in that perspective. Here's here's already my mindset. I already I, I want to beat them so bad in this game that I can I can taste it because if we lose to them again, as great as Matt Campbell is and as great as that team is, the fact that that fan base will be able to some point go well, he still hasn't beaten Kirk Ferentz and Brock Purdy's zero and four versus Iowa and like that one little thing that they just pick at and pick at and pick at I I just need that gone for my sanity right that's how and two years ago when we played well a year and a half ago when we played uh, when they played and game day was there and that atmosphere mm-hmm. I can't imagine that it's going to be cr- as crazy as that but it has to be it, it has to be with with the stakes that are that are there and, and the rankings that come beside their name right I mean yeah. Iowa State who knows where they're going to be they're going to be a top 10 football team everybody's coming back I was going to be, you know, 10 to 20 in the upper teens, somewhere around there. Um, and it's going to be, well, look at, uh, to your point about that one little thing that they pick on, right? This year it's Louisiana Lafayette. Yeah, yeah, yeah you won the Fiesta Bowl, but come talk to me about the Raging Cajuns. Right. Right? There's always something. And that's what moves the needle on this rivalry. That's what uh, makes it so special. And from somebody that, you know, really doesn't have a rooting interest, just can't wait for the game to be over and everybody can go back to being friends again and look forward to 365 year, days down the road. Um, it's going to be through the roof. It's going to be, it's going to be nuts. Yeah. You know, I think that's something when we were talking about Iowa sports, central Iowa sports that I, I don't think, uh, I appreciated enough growing up in Iowa, growing up in, in Eastern Iowa. Yeah, there was, you know, a, a bit of a Chicago influence, but there was still, you know, a St. Louis influence and still mm-hmm. a Kansas City influence and all of that. I don't think I necessarily appreciated that we were a state as small as, as Iowa is with not one but two power five yeah. teams from two different conferences being represented that's that's pretty rare i mean and you see a lot of you know minnesota there's really only one big school here at least when it comes to to football or basketball wisconsin you've got you know one major one and then and maybe some smaller schools you don't necessarily see two big fan bases in in what are a lot of ways almost like rival conferences, certainly the rival schools, it just creates a whole nother layer that, that, well, it it probably doesn't help that growing up in Iowa, 
uh, as an Iowa State fan, I was just watching my team get whooped <laughs> on every year. Uh, that 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 was not helping, but it is definitely something that I think is is certainly uh, more unique in the Midwest and really as you look around the country. No, there's no doubt. I mean, having the Big Ten and the Big Twelve. Yeah, Georgia's got the ACC with Georgia Tech and the SEC with Georgia and Kentucky, Louisville and the University of Kentucky. And of course, Florida State and Miami and Florida and the SEC. Um, but but the Big Ten and uh, the Big 12, uh, the back and forth amongst those two conferences just adds to it. It's um, it's it's very unique. No doubt, Tim. Yeah, so. Early on, Iowa State feeding a lot of your guys' stuff and so on. I know, for me, uh, as an early listener, I was mesmerized by your guys' show. And, uh, I mean, I, I grew up a huge sports fan. Nobody else in my family was was really into sports. So there would be Sundays, uh, NFL football. I'd be the only one in my house in my basement watching football. Nobody else was interested. My 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 siblings were older and, and married on. So, um Sports to me became a passion and an outlet for me. So when you guys came on, I was mesmerized by it. And, you know, at that time, uh, my father and I were running our business and um, we were looking for advertising and, and we reached out to you guys. And that's kind of where our story is going to start, I think. That's where, our, yeah, that's it's uh, our paths crossed for the first time, right? Was, uh, and, and it's, Funny is not the right word, um, but the way we came together and how we met is, you know, when it did hit the fan with him, when when he was finally taken out of society off of the streets um, is when I first heard about your story, you know, you yeah. and your father's story. Um, and yeah, the, the, the one first time that you and I had met was at a remote at my store. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll never forget we, it was during basketball season and you guys were having a conversation about uh, non-conference schedules and whether or not that would weaken their chances of making the, um, the tournament. And I don't think I've ever told you this story, Ken, but it's kind of funny. All so right. I'm on the radio with you guys and I'm, you know, I think, and I, I know a lot about sports. I'm going to give this opinion. And, and I said, I think I said something to the effect of, yeah, well, but, these these teams play these harder non-conference teams, but their conference that they play in isn't as good. So it should equal all out since we play in a Big 12 and we play in a harder conference. And the look you had on your face, like this guy might be the dumbest guy I've ever heard before. <laughs> <laughs> like, and all of a sudden you just go, well, that's an interesting perspective or something like that. And I thought, I'm way out of my league here. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't remember. I don't recall. No, I know you don't, but I mean, <laughs> but I was like, I'm getting off this radio. I look like an idiot. No, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, re I don't remember the day, Chris, as, as we've talked uh, before, you know, in 25 years, I've, I've been to a lot of them and I, I, unfortunately, I, I don't remember it. Um, I've tried to rack my brain and to recall were we in a back room maybe? Yeah, it was kind of a back room. We, we had a warehouse of some sort. So we were okay. we weren't in the showroom part of it itself. And it was so over. So then I do faintly remember, vaguely remember. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the shelving was more pallet type shelving and things like that. Uh, so, yep. 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 Yeah. So, so I remember that part of it. 
And then, uh, you know, I, 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 um, I read, and I think Tom Witoski wrote a piece at one point. Um, and were you guys a part of that? I know that there was, yes. uh, you, so Terrell had left somebody, somebody won a trip to, a, uh, to the big 12 championship game and he bought him a one way. Didn't <laughs> he didn't buy him a return ticket, you know, mm-hmm. all expenses yeah. paid, except you're on your own to get home. Um, so I, I didn't, it, it, it was my impression that the early days of the jock were legit, if, if, if that's the right word, right? See, right. I would get off the air and I would go to my full-time job. That's what I don't think people realize. The, the, you know, when, yeah, I, I mean, we were, the radio team was Marty Miller, but that's all it was, right? I would get off the air, do my shift and go to my full-time job which I do to this day and have done every day that, you know, of the 25 years that I've been on the air, whether I was, you know, employed full-time at Prairie Meadows, which I was until 2004, or from that, you know, I think there was a month there in 2004 that I was between full-time gigs and I've had the full-time gigs since then. Radio is not my full-time job. Radio is my part-time job. And it's, it's been, it's been a great part-time job. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, is is um, as I learned more about you and your father and what happened. I wanted to you know, to reach out to you to make. I mean, I mean not to try and uh, not to make sure, but the people that that built the jock that that were there from day one, right? Other than Terrell. This was a good group of men and women, people that tried hard, people that weren't going to get rich doing it, people that realized very quickly that that this format that is brand new to Des Moines is something that people are gravitating to. I mean, we started on 1490, very quickly discovered that this our show and sports talk was so much bigger than a small AM radio station that we convinced the owner who at the time owned 1490 and 106.9, which is now, which became 107.1. So we switched, we switched them around. We put the country music on 1490 and the sports talk on 106.9. And then there was a bit of interference with a 106.7 station. We, um, a guy by the name of Jim McBride who owned the station petitioned the FCC to move to from 106.9 to 107.1 just to get out of 106.7's way and make it a clear uh, make it uh, make made the reception better but you know when, when I read about your story when it finally hit the fan and everything that went you know that that you had been such a long history in this uh, I wanted to reach out to you and I'm really glad that I did because it was, and I think I used this word, and maybe I'm getting further ahead of where you want to at this point, but I think I used the word in our conversation. I'll never forget the day it was. It's President's Day. You know, every President's Day from, from here on in, and, and since that day, I think of Chris Shipley, because, you know, he sat down with me and was willing to listen to me, um, and it was therapeutic, and I really needed that at the time, Chris, and I told you that. You know, I think repeatedly, you're probably sick of me saying that, um, that I needed it. And you were there to let me 
um, not vent, but express my feelings. And I, you know, you had some questions that you asked me and a friendship came out of it. Uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't give that day up for anything. Um, you know, going years for years, it wasn't even a thought to me about, um, about him until he would pop up with another job or, or here and there or whatever. And for me, I never, in regards to you, ever thought that you, you were in on it. Right. Right. Um, I think you were pretty open and honest about your life on the radio enough times to know that you, you weren't, you didn't go on these things or you didn't go here. You, nope. you, know, you, you had a life at home and, 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 and you took care of that, you know, the jokes that would fly on the air of like, well, you know, it's five o'clock Ken's out of here cause he's going home or, you know, or right. whatever else. So, um, I mean, I didn't know that for, for a fact, but looking back and after we had our conversation and we'll talk more about it, I never really realized the damage that happened to you either, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and for me, at the very beginning, um, I think as I've looked at this more and more and I've told the story more and more, I think part of me felt like there was something wrong. But my ego of wanting to be involved with somebody that was so charismatic and involved in sports and things like that, I think sometimes blinded my judgment. And I wouldn't say that I influenced my dad, but I didn't necessarily ever express my concerns. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I don't know that I knew how deep it would have got before. I just... I always got the, the impression from him when he would come in, he was so charismatic. I've used this word a thousand times when I come in, he was bombastic and, 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 and very friendly and, you know, could pat you on the shoulder and tell a story that could relate to you and so on. And I think he was a hustler and I think he was, he was a, a go-getter mm-hmm. uh, in that type of mentality. And if only he would have used that for good reasons other than bad, yep. um, but I think that that related to my dad a lot. My dad grew up, he was an eighth grade dropout education. He hustled his entire life. And when I say hustled, I don't mean he hustled people out of money. I mean, if he had to make mortgage, he hustled a side job or he went and did some kind of yard work or he went into construction mm-hmm. or he did something to make sure that his family was taken care of. And as a kid, I grew up and never knew how poor we were or whatever. So I think he related to that type of... Um, mentality right and i think that marty knew that and tapped into that and fed him things that led him down some decisions that the old saying is it's too if it's too good to be true it probably is and mm-hmm. my dad just never saw that um and it, and it began with with the remote and and yep. um and we did get business from that and dad felt that that was a return on the investment so we continued to do advertising with him and so on we never saw Ken Miller come in our store and try to sell us advertising or try to sell us a Super Bowl package. The only time I ever saw Ken Miller was when he was in there doing his job. That right. was it. Um, and, and I really, part of this too for me is, is that I, I really hope people understand that. Because it, as you've said, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, it, it, it's kind of a shame sometimes every time somebody says Marty, the next word is sometimes Miller. And that's yeah. just not fair. That's not fair. Um, 
but you know, he came in, uh, I, I remember the day he came in and he was talking, it was the big Holyfield Tyson two fight that was happening and all the up, up and, and so on. And he had talked to, to my dad about sponsoring the jocks, um, coverage of the fight. And he intertwined that with, with, with a business opportunity. You know, he would sell him some, some uh, commercial time during that. Uh, he said that himself and, uh, and the jock were going to be out there doing live break-ins and live remotes, and those would all be sponsored by computer liquidators. Uh, and uh, fight and so on. We could pay for all that, and then we would be on the radio and so on. And I, my dad was not a sports fan, was not. You know, my dad would joke about boxing. He's like, listen, for for $5, I'll take you downtown. I'll let you watch two guys beat the crap out of them downtown. We don't we ain't got to pay $60 to watch it, you know? Right. Um, so we did that and, and, and we, we paid him a, a large sum of money for those, for those accommodations and tickets and, and, uh, and fight coverage and so on. And at that point, Marty knew that he had dad on the hook, right. For at least five mm-hmm. grand, you know, uh, and he would come in every week and, and, and he'd show my dad, you know, spots that he was going to air on the radio and, and, and uh, dad would write him a, a weekly check. That's how my dad paid for his advertising. He would pay a weekly and write him a check for the spots that they would run. Uh, and he, um, about, I'd say about a month before the, the Tyson Holyfield fight, uh, he had came in and was talking about uh, a, a side deal that he uh, was involved in where he had the opportunity to buy. <laughs> and it's funny, not funny. You, I hear this scam now that he pulled on us and it's the same scam he was running yeah. that he just got locked up for. Right. When I hear the word Super Bowl packages and Super Bowl ticket packages, I, you know, a little chill goes up my spine. Yeah. Uh, and he offered, he, he offered a chance for my dad to buy into this package you could buy these, helping finance these packages. And then when the Super Bowl came around, Marty would resell those packages, you know, air flight, accommodations, tickets, and so on. And then him and dad would split the money, split the profit. And I, it's been 20 some years, 30 some years. I don't know. My, my, my memory is a little foggy, but I'm, it was close to seventeen or $18,000 check that my dad wrote him. Wow. Now, at the time, we were a small business. We had one store. Um, we were, it, it was at the height of the computer business. I mean, you know, new computers were over a thousand dollars. We were selling used ones for three, $400. So we, we were, we had a good business going. Yep. Um, and then we went to Vegas in, in, in the Tyson Holyfield fight. And not only did Holyfield get his ear bit off, but we, <laughs> uh, that's when we found out what we were dealing with. I think, um, well, I know. We, we flew out there. Um, surprisingly, we had tickets. Surprisingly, we had, we, we he paid for all of the air, airfare in the hotel and so on. So there was nothing not on the up and up at that point. Um, but there were a couple of times when dad would ask him where the tickets were for the fight. And he said, well, I got to go pick them up. I got to go pick them up. And at one point, my dad said, I don't think he's got those tickets. I think he's trying to buy them scalped. That's, mm-hmm. that's what my dad had said. He said, I don't know that for sure. And then the day of the fight, we weren't doing these remotes. You know, dad's paying for these remotes. We're not doing these remotes. And uh, and uh, he 
finally got a hold of Marty. And Marty's like, well, we're going to meet in the lobby of the MGM Grand. The fight, the, the Tyson fight itself starts, the, the undercards and so on start at 7. We're going to meet at 5 o'clock. We'll do all the remotes and so on and the tapes and things like that at 5 o'clock. And then we'll all go into the fight. So we all go over to the MGM Grand at 5 o'clock. And uh, we're in the lobby and there's no Marty. And initially you think, okay, he's running late. There's, I mean, there was a shit ton of people in there. I mean, it was crazy. The amount of celebrities and things like that that walked through there and walked by us was insane. Well, we're in there two hours and, and he's not answering. And at this time, the cell phones were, uh, were fairly early, but sure. he had a cell phone. We had a cell phone. Um, he wouldn't answer his cell phone. Uh, couldn't find him anywhere. It was my dad and my uncle. And, you know, just as a side note, my uncle Raymond grew up on the east side, was a coach for a local boxing club on the east side for underprivileged kids. It was his dream to go to a prize fight. And my wow. dad was so excited to take him to this. Wow. And then myself and my brother-in-law. And my dad asked my brother-in-law and I to go walk around the casino and go find him. And we couldn't find him. And dad said, I want you to stay here and continue to look for him. I'm going back to the room because I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose my mind. And we were in there probably an hour longer. And we finally ended up going back to the hotel, meeting my dad in his room. And we ended up watching that Tyson Holyfield fight in a, in a, in a dinky little home, hotel room in, in Las Vegas. Mm. And that was when dad realized he had been had and that his thought immediately was that $17,000 check for, for those Super Bowl packages. So mm. we go to the airport the next morning. And there's a chance for everybody to take a flight uh, to go home early. Uh, but my dad asked me to stay and wait for the, the normal flight because that was the flight that Marty was going to be on to see if Marty was going to make that flight. So dad and my brother-in-law Mike and my uncle Raymond flew out that morning. And I waited at the airport for about three hours before our next flight. And here come Marty and his wife. And I walked right up to him and I said, where the fuck were you? And he was like, I've been, I, I was trying to find you guys. And I mean, you know, trying to cover his tracks. And I was like, no, 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 no. Open up. I said, and I, and I opened mine. I said, you have 20 some missed fucking phone calls. So I'm going to warn you right now, when you get back to the morning, you're going to get a phone call. You better not miss that one. Hmm. And I, I got in line, got on the plane. I didn't talk to him the rest of the time. Uh, so we got to the airport and I took a cab home. And uh, that's when everything fell apart. We tried to, to get him on the phone. We called, we called the, the, the station. Um, and to hear him on the radio after that, talking about like there was nothing that he had done wrong. Right. Was just, you know, it was just, I just wanted to just choke him. Chris, I remember and, the shows. I remember the shows after the fight because of the ear bite, right? It yeah. was such it was such a big deal. Uh, and I can remember, you know, he was it was probably pretty good radio that day because you know he was there and it was a big event. And uh, unbeknownst to anybody, what had gone on with you and your family? Right. Yeah. And he was talking about being there and how crazy it was. And I'm yeah. Like, you know, and. And I'll, I'll never forget, this was early, early on in the message boards. Early on when message boards were a thing. 
And yep. uh, I think the jock had a message board. We did. Yeah, we did. And, and, I, and you know what? It, it was only up. It wasn't up for a long period of time. And I, I remember having a big discussion argument, probably not the right word debate as to why we're closing down the message boards. This is really something that can grow our audience because you were right. This was when message boards started to become a thing. Right. So are you about to tell me that? Right. That you're there was the a certain, the message board there was closed? a certain, there was a certain poster on there called the grim reaper. Okay. That, uh, I mean, lit him up every chance he got. And, and that was me. Um, to the point where he mentioned me that on the radio and thought that it was me really but he i think he was a little afraid to to say he had hinted around that it was me so my dad um the first thing dad did was he called channel 13 mm-hmm. and i can't remember I, I can't remember who the reporter was it was a it was a young woman and it was when they would do those exposés, you know, and, you know, the whole hype thing. Dirty dining thing. stuff. Right. That kind of yeah. stuff. Right. And uh, they came to the store and they had filmed that and he had told the story about the Super Bowl tickets and so on. And I'll never, this is ingrained in my mind. I'll never forget the, the TV, uh, the cameraman had zoomed in on the checks that dad had written him and dad had all the canceled checks and he was flipping through the canceled checks. And my dad was pointing at him. And, and, and he, and my dad said, somebody just has to shine the spotlight on him. Somebody just has to shine the spotlight on him. And we thought, you know, you're going to be on channel 13 and you know, the blowback and Mm -hmm. he's going to, you know, pay our money and so on. Nothing. I mean, the guy was Teflon. He, nothing phased him. Well, did it ever air Chris? Yes, it did. It did. I don't remember that. Yeah. I wish. I wish uh, to, about a, when this all came out and I met you and so on and Andy uh, Fails had contacted me after that's how I got found was they this had been posting around on on Twitter and Facebook and I had responded to a post on uh, Keith Murphy's I had written up this whole story and posted it on a whim I was sitting at work at my desk and I was like I'm just going to write this out and say here here's what happened to me and Andy Fails called me and wanted to interview me um and uh, and I told him that there was uh, an interview in 97 mm-hmm. uh, with Channel 13. And I'm not sure that they ever found. I mean, who knows? They probably still don't have that. I don't know. But uh, I was really hoping that they would have found um, just because, you know, it was my dad and he and he tried yeah. to warn people. And I want I, I was really hoping to see that. Well, I think what, um, what surprises me. So Tyson Holyfield was 96, right? He'd only Seven. he'd he'd only been in town for maybe what a year. So here's this slick talking East Coast guy in Central Iowa. I'm surprised that there wasn't more of maybe uh, a uproar at a piece like that. I am too, Tim. That's why I, I don't recall seeing the piece air. The only the only blowback piece from the from the Jock Indianola days before he left and then went to. You know, to start 940 with the with Michael Gartner and Sam Burnaby and the I Cubs was the piece that Tom Watoski wrote in the Des Moines Register. But, but because, Chris, that would have jolted, I think, all of us that certainly were trying to get this off the ground, that there was a piece that would have run on 
on Channel 13. And I know at the time, eight dominated the ratings. But still, he would have thought enough people would have seen it, that something would have been done or been said about it. And I don't recall um, seeing that at all. Yeah, I well, and I think that's what prompted Tom Witoski to then get in touch with my dad. Okay. Because it was shortly after that. Well, at that and then at that point, dad was going to lawyers trying to find somebody that would that would sue him. And mm-hmm. we probably saw four lawyers before we got a lawyer to even take the case because they just didn't think that they'd be able to get any money out of it, anybody. And, you know, let's be honest, the lawyer's not in it to 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 right or wrong. They're in it to, to get their check, which is, you know, it, it is what it is. I don't I don't mean that in a bad way, but. I mean, they're not going to put a bunch of work in if there's not something in it for them. I, I totally understand right. that. But uh, we finally had gotten a lawyer that, that you know, he, they had filed suit against Marty and the station and, and Jim McBride uh, personally. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, I think with that filing and then that, that airing of that TV station, uh, Tom Matoski had reached out to my dad and wanted to talk to my dad. And Tom, at that point, I believe, had heard some rumblings of some other cases of some fraud. Specifically, from what I remember, was the owner of the Okaboji Bar and Grill. Yep. Uh, they, he had done, I, I don't know all the details on there, but I just remember he, Tom, when he had interviewed my dad and I, uh, had told us that there were a few other people that had been taken, and one of them was that particular gentleman. Yeah, it was um, uh, Leroy's his first name. Uh, he owned the Okaboji Bar and Grill. I, I don't remember, um, you know, what Malthians that he caused uh, w- with Leroy. The the one that I can recall, and I and I thought that this was the, you know, the lone instance of uh, him, you know, uh, running afoul was was the guy that uh, won the tickets to the Big Twelve championship football championship in dallas and i don't know what even year it was 2000 1999 and he got him his ticket he got into the game he got there but he didn't have a flight home um so yeah that those those were those were certainly new to me and so just just as an aside uh do you recall what kind of response jim mcbride had uh i i don't recall i think at the time i think that they we're going to fight it because I don't think that he believed it. I, I pro- um, he probably didn't. Right. I, that was my impression. Dad, I know that the dad had never personally spoken to, to Jim and and it was through the lawyers, but the lawyers were kicking back that they were going to fight it, that none of this was true and that uh, they had a valid contract and, and that, um, you know, as far as they were concerned uh, with the Super Bowl tickets, that was still a deal that had, you know, that had potential and they had not reneged on that particular deal. Um, I think then with the Witoski article is when I think we then started to see some movement on our end as far as a settlement goes. Um, and Jim had filed, had, had agreed to a settlement um, for, I believe. So with, with the 17,000 that we wrote for Super Bowl tickets and then the around Forty-five, five thousand dollars for the Tyson deal. I think that's twenty-two, twenty-three thousand dollars. They settled for ten, and uh, my dad at that point was like, "You know, we'll take what we can get," because I, I don't know that we're, you know, could have filed bankruptcy and then just 
walked away from it. And, you know, after the lawyer's fees and cut, I think, I think dad got a check for 6,000. Hmm. Well, I do remember the Witoski piece jolted him because uh, he called me, I think it ran on a Sunday if, if memory serves and he called me and, and he was bawling and he had to pass the phone to his wife um, at the time, his first wife. And, and I know that the next, you know, when we all resumed or went back to the office, to the station on Monday, it was, um, it was a different atmosphere, you know, with the full timers that were there. I'm not sure, you know, they had to be there all day and I'm sure they were walking around on eggshells. But, you know, when that story came out, you know, I thought that this was probably going to be the end of this sports talk radio career in Des Moines. It was certainly fun while it lasted, wish it could have lasted longer, but he overcame it somehow, Chris. And I don't know if that was, you know, timeline wise, if that was at uh, close to the time that he was um, making a move to 940. I know that Jim McBride hired uh, another radio operator to come in and take over and maybe that had something to do with it. I, I don't know the circumstances, but all of a sudden I remember this vividly that I did the morning show, got off the air at nine o'clock, went right to the airport and got on a plane for Prairie Meadows and flew to a convention in Florida, Deerfield Beach. And when I got into my room, the this was four cell phones and the little red lights blinking on my phone at the hotel that I was staying at. And it was to call the radio station right away. And I called and I, I called to the new manager at the time. And uh, he, and again, Marty and I were on the air at nine o'clock that morning. So for between nine o'clock in the morning and I'll say four o'clock by the time I got to Deerfield beach, um, it had ended. And I wonder if that had anything to do with it. The lawsuit settlement. I don't know. It's, it's quite possible. I do remember shortly after the Witoski article, the afternoon show, I think, was it was well. I know it was Bob Dyer and, and Tim Darrow, probably, and, and Tim or Scott, maybe somebody named Scott. I, I, I could be completely wrong here. Okay. I know Bob Dyer was. Yep. But there was a there was a section of that night where they were. I wouldn't say defending him, but unbelieving of some of the things that were in the article. Well, I don't think anybody wanted to and, believe it. Right now, yeah, looking back. Uh, if I'm putting myself in their shoes and this is my job and I'm going to lose my right. I'm, I'm really fending, but saying, Oh, that's true. That doesn't seem possible. You know what I mean? And I remember calling into the show and just basically telling them they were full of shit. I mean, I didn't use that word, but I remember getting on the phone and telling them who I was and they were, and I was on the radio and I told them, I'm telling you right now, everything is true. And if you don't believe me, you can come over here and see the checks for yourself. Right. <laughs> And uh, at that point, that was when that conversation was over. And the <laughs> only the only time in between that time that I ever, ever had a confrontation with Marty after that was it was shortly after the Witoski article as well. And he was he had mentioned me on the radio and had some pretty disparaging marks about my weight and how uh, I was fat and I could barely fit into the airplane when we went there. I mean, he was he was pretty brutal. To the point where my wife called me at the time and was crying because somebody had heard it on the radio. Oh, and, I, and I drove to the radio station and waited for him to come out of there and confronted him in the parking lot. Hmm. And told him that if he ever mentioned my name on the radio again, that he wouldn't walk out of that parking lot alive. 
Um, yeah. Um, that was the last conversation I ever had with oof. him. Um, but, you know, after that, um, that was a, that was a pretty big hit to my dad's business. And, and I won't say that that was the only thing that, that put him out of business, but it certainly did not put him on a good path, uh, you know, to, to, to lose $11,000 in a small business when you're counting on that as to, to profit off of was pretty devastating. And that coupled with the downturn in the economy, it just, it put him, it put our business in, in, in a bind where we were, I can remember for months, um, we were writing, we were, we were paying the rent and paying. And at one, at that point, it was just me and him. We had to, we had to let everybody else go. There was three other people that worked there, wow. one full-time and two part-time. And we ended up just being me and him. And there were times where he would come to me and say, I, I can't write you a check this week for, for, you know, how much do you need to pay your, to, to pay your, what's your light bill this week? I'll write you a check enough for, you know, out of your, to, to, to pay your light bill. Cause he could make, he could make payroll to me, mm-hmm. you know, and what am I going to do? Leave him? I can't leave him. You know what I mean? That he, he ain't got nothing else. I can't, I knew, I always knew I could go find another job, but this was my dad's dream. I wasn't just going to walk out. And so I, I, I suffered financially for four or five years after that, mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I would make a bare minimum on a credit card just to pay a credit card. And I would use a credit card to pay this bill. I mean, it, it was a trickle down effect of what that guy did that affected for a long time. No, I can, I can understand, you know, and I think that's reading the piece, um, you know, when he was arrested, um, it, 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 it was very clear, whoever wrote it, they did a really good job of chronicling what your father meant to you. Um, you know, what the times that, you know, even though there were bad times that you had with them, those, um, you know, times that you won't forget, wish they could have been a better ending. Um, but it was just, it was, it was your story and about your story of a father and son that really hit home to me when I read the piece in the register. And, and was there, was there something put on Twitter video, maybe from 13 or eight to, did either yeah. TV station interview you? Yeah, Channel Thirteen had come out and interviewed me um, that day that I that um, that uh, all of that had broke loose that he had been arrested and everything else because that's when I had posted just a short little snippet on Keith Murphy's post on Facebook and then Keith had messaged yeah. me and said, you know, can Andy give you a call? Um, and then they had sent one of their young reporters over uh, to to interview me, who, by the way, as a side story, showed up in a wrinkled shirt. And a, and, a, and a hat and his tie half wrong. And I thought, I, I, I literally thought they called this dude and woke him up in the middle of the afternoon and ran <laughs> him over here. Uh, he met me at the, he met me in the, in the lobby of Capitol Square where my office building was. And that's how, okay. yeah, that was how fast they wanted to get over there. So, um, no, it was a big day. Look, it was, it was a big day and the day that a lot of people saw coming. And, um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's come out of it too is, you know, Michael Gartner, to his credit, from City View, Civic Skinny, he was the only, and he's not a media person anymore. Of course, he used to run NBC TV, uh, NBC News back in the 80s. So he's certainly a journalist at heart. And he, he thought he had something and he wouldn't let it go. 
and five, eight, and thirteen until the arrest, uh, with the exception of Watoski's piece. It was a lot of fluff. You know, there was a lot of puff pieces about about Terrell, uh, about the cockroach. I think he's quoted in something that you can't kill him. And then when, you know, I ultimately made the biggest career mistake that I made, there was a big puff piece with the Des Moines Register, right? It was us getting back together. It uh, was nothing about uh, the rumors that were out there. I mean, I, I, there, was, there was none of that stuff that came along with it. So, um, you know, the media, uh, I think if they... I'm not pointing finger or blame at anybody. Everybody does, you know, they run their business the way they want to, but it's certainly something that lasted longer than it should have. And sadly, Chris and Tim, um, I perpetuated that at the end because I think the only reason that he darkened my doorstep was he was out of um, people that he could call people that would listen and he knew that at the time I had a, pre, uh, a pristine reputation, at least I, that's how I see myself in the community. And I could open up some doors to him that otherwise he wouldn't be able to even get close to. And that's what I did in the beginning. You know, it was all the support that, that relaunched Marty and Miller were, were people that knew me, that respected me, that were willing to help me and sadly, Chris, uh, three out of the four people, the doors that I opened, um, they're all victims. Yeah. And there's just so many of them, right? There's so many of them. So many that nobody knows um, that'll never, that will never, that will never go forward, uh, partly out of embarrassment, uh, partly just want to put it behind them. You know, you read about the realtor that lost $600,000 uh, in, in a deal. And I could never believe that, right? I don't, that's BS. Come on. You're trying to tell me that, that uh, you wrote Terrell a, a, a check for $600,000 and you're just going to let that slide. You're not going to recoup it. Um, you know, I, I couldn't believe people were like that. And then I saw it first time with my own two eyes. Yeah. So when did, when do you think you've, it started to really, uh, get the gravity of all of this because i think i think obviously you saw there was a lot of a lot of smoke along the way but maybe not yeah you know tim i i did and i'll tell you exactly when when i saw it, but just just as a little bit of a backstory I, i'm a hardcore newspaper reader right i love the newspaper and i learned to read by reading the paper in the 60s the sports section and if my dad called sports first, I would have to read the news section. So, and to this day, you pick up the Des Moines Register and the uh, the treasurer for the softball team absconded with eleven thousand dollars, or the Girl Scout leader. They 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 looked at the books and there's thirty thousand dollars missing, and that's a big story. And yet, Terrell's allegedly ripping these people off for hundreds of thousands of dollars and no one's writing about it. No one's reporting about it. So it was kind of hard for me to believe mm -hmm. until July. And I don't know the precise date, but it was July of 2017. And I told Terrell that this is my last month, that this isn't working. Um, 
and he and he and his girlfriend got in a plane and went on vacation for four weeks. And I was to have a guy in one of our sponsors and he was going to come and he was going to co-host and do a half hour on his business because we're on TV at the time, TV only. I think we'd given up radio and we sat down at, at, uh, at the Mediacom studios and he started to unload on me. And knowing that this is happening, I know that there's people in the control room because they're getting ready to put our show on the air. And um, we, we were taping a segment that was going to air at some point. And I wanted to keep him talking because what he was telling me, I didn't want him just to be telling me because no one would believe what I was hearing. So I was kind of interviewing him, knowing that now I've got witnesses that because my jaws dropped to the ground when I'm hearing the stories of how he's able to get into this guy's good graces and to get into his checkbook and some of the stuff that he's writing checks for, like go back to Chris and his dad, they, you know, they were told they're going to do a remote at the MGM in front of a heavyweight championship fight on a radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, these people thought the same thing. And so I kept them going for about 15 minutes and everybody that was, you know, that was uh, working on the show that day heard the same thing. So that's when I knew. And from that day forward, this fella, uh, I won't say his name out of respect for him, but if you look at the charging document for Terrell, when the, when the warrant was unsealed, there are eight people's initials that are listed um, as victims, and his initials are one of the eight. But long story short, he and I took it upon ourselves to do everything we could to get him off the street. And we started contacting some of his advertisers with a story that was similar to the Tom Matoski piece that was going to run in his hometown newspaper and for whatever reason was pulled and never ran. But we had a copy of it. So we mm. sent this story to all of the advertisers and because if he's not getting any money, he's not going to be able to be on TV. And we thought that this could end his reign of terror perhaps quicker um, than, than if we didn't do anything. And we believe it did. Well, finally, somebody stepped up and, and, and made a decision. That's, and, and for me, when you, when you say that there were people out there that were, that were afraid or ashamed or whatever, I, I know there were some in my own family who a year and a half ago when I started talking about this were upset that I was talking about it because it, they thought it made dad look bad. No. And I was adamant that I was going to tell my story mm -hmm. because dad didn't do anything wrong. Nope. He took a man at his word, which is what you would expect somebody to do. Right. The, yep. the old talk of, you know, a handshake was a deal and, and, and you took a man at his word. So those things meant something to my dad and to me. Um, and you can't go through life all cynical and afraid all the time. You can protect yourself but you can't live your life in fear either. And when you do that and you're taken advantage of, 
you don't have anything to be ashamed of. And I wasn't, and, and my dad certainly wasn't ashamed of it. I mean, any chance he got, he told people what a slime ball he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think my dad would have been proud of the fact that I stood up and, t- and, and told dad's story and, and, and reminded everybody that dad for years would, 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 I mean, he'd get another job and my dad would be so pissed. He'd be like, I can't believe they're giving that fucker a job again. Mm-hmm. Like, hasn't he robbed off? Hasn't he robbed enough people? Um, but I think to your point, Ken, I think part of it was, and, and I'm not, I'm not blaming the media either, but there wasn't any money in it for him. The money was to, to prop him up. And once there was money into having his downfall, that's when they were interested. I really believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I won't try to talk you out of it. You know, there was a period guys when, when he was at KXNO before the F-bombs dropped, when, when he and I um, finally, you know, we, we were um, Steve Dace decided he, we were doing Saturday mornings and Saturday mornings only. And Steve Dace decided that sports weren't um, something that you wanted to continue. And we took his afternoon slot and we really built something there. And the reason I bring that up is because there was a period of time when he was in Des Moines that he was doing everything by the rules, playing by the book because he wasn't allowed to sell. You know, he, he was, he was like me. You go on the air from four to seven. That's it. That's what, that's what we want you to do. We're not paying your benefits. You're not a full-time employee. You're not selling. You talk sports, you do your talk show from four until seven. And with the, with one exception, and it had to do with sports tickets again, I think it was the 2000, well, it was Tiger Woods when he was, when he won the U S open with a broken leg. Mm, um, yeah. Rocco so he, he had, he had an insurance guy out and they were inside the ropes and it was kind of like that, you know, that access that you would never get it unless you, you know, you, you had an acquaintance, if you want to call Terrell an acquaintance, and I don't know what he got from this guy or how, how that relationship formed and built, but his time, our time at KXNO until the F-bombs dropped, he was a choir boy as far as sales. Now, I will say this, toward the end, and you've been in the studio, Chris, you've seen that, you know, there's two monitors in front of all of the hosts, right? Mm-hmm. For uh, even with the internet, etc. One's a call screen, but you can have two uh, monitors if you want. On one monitor would be one horse race. On another monitor would be a different horse race. And in our final, I don't know how many months it would be, during our show, <laughs> when we're talking sports to an audience, an afternoon drive, he's betting one race after another. So that's where I first started to see the downfall of what I guess would become his or the resurgence of his gambling problem. And maybe I should have done more. Maybe I should have said something, but I'm always, I'm a live and let live kind of person, you know, and, and for right or wrong, you know, how's this affecting me? Well, I don't give a damn if he loses his money. Are we still getting good ratings? Are we still doing good radio? Yeah. You know, let, let him do what he needs to do. And again, at the end of the day, I'd come home. Right. You know, I don't know what he would do. But um, when he was at KXNO, and I want to make that clear, um, while we were at KXNO before the F-bombs dropped, he was, um, he was on the up and up. 
though one, maybe one of the few times. Well, so what, what was he doing if, if he wasn't full time and he wasn't selling for the radio season? What was he doing to supplement his income at that point then? Well, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but um, we didn't need to. Gotcha. We were, um, we were on top. Gotcha. And um, we were doing very well. I guess the reason I ask is because, you know, what happened uh, with Chris and his dad happened in 97, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you wonder where or what other other things have not come out that happened over a 20 year span. Yeah. Good question. Well, he went back to Massachusetts for a few years. So uh, around the Watoski piece, you know, he gets uh, he gets hired at 940. They're trying to launch a station there, the iCubs group. Um, he leads to go. He leaves them to go back and work for the Boston Celtics and then started his own station in Nashua, New Hampshire. Kind of the, the jock, uh, all, all this, this, the same shenanigans that uh, we come to find out that he was pulling with, you know, computer liquidators and business like that. He was doing with small businesses back in Nashua. Um, I believe it was Nashua, New Hampshire. Um, so that's, that's what he was doing until 2004. Came back here. We started, uh, you know, with 1490 again with a group of people from his hometown, which I'm assuming, you know, they're victims as well, because, you know, that whole, I'll sell your radio station thing, that was part of it. Uh, so we got on the air for um, a couple of years with that. And then we're off the air, um, the period of time we were off the air is when Larry Eustachie got busted, which really disappointed mm-hmm. me because, I mean, what a great time to be able to talk sports and I don't have an outlet to do so. So <laughs> then um, so then we got uh, to KXNO. We're doing Saturday mornings. Um, they brought us back, you know, knowing that there was probably going to be an opening in the afternoon show at some point in the near future. And um, so I don't know what he was doing in New Hampshire other than the fact what I, other than what I read now in the hometown papers back there that he was doing the same stuff back there as he was doing here. I remember I, and it might've been right around there. He had came back. Maybe that's what it was. And he had, was that, I think he had gotten remarried by then. No, not remarried, but he'd met, he'd met um, his first marriage was ending. And um, that's why that's, that was the, you know, the story we were told. That's why he was running away from his hometown and he came back here and, you know, I don't know if he was drinking. I, he wasn't drinking on the job as he was later, um, you know, in our final go around. I don't know, Chris, I don't know what he was doing. Um, and then the whole, I just remember, Des Moines stuff. I, I remember at some point he, he had, not confessed up, but he had he, he had acknowledged that he had had some demons and he he had, he was turning his life around. I, I that's when yeah, that, that's when he got married. That was um, uh, you know when he tried joined Alcoholics Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous, and I mean the whole the stuff that went down with the car dealership and bringing Troy Aikman to town and all of those things. You know, I have no idea what was going on then because I was working with Jim Brinson, yeah, at KXNO. Or with Matt Peralt, um, you know, when uh, when the F-bombs dropped in 2009, Matt Peralt moves to town. Him and I do two years together. Then he goes back. 
ironically, to run the same station that Terrell had left to come back here um, in New Hampshire. And uh, then the, the Jim Brinson era and, you know, then that uh, fateful day that he showed up and I decided to, uh, you know, make the mistake that I was about to make. And no one was going to talk me out of it. Not my wife, uh, not people I trust. Um, I was going to get back together with him because I remembered what we had during the times at KXNO when it was good and we were, you know, making great money and um, those type of things. And I wanted to do it again. And um, I wish I wouldn't have. Yeah, I, I, I remember that time. That was, that was when uh, Brenton had just left. They were going to bring on a new partner for you. Yep. There was a lot of changes going on there. I think Ross was in the morning with, with uh, Travis. Yeah. With Travis at the time, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was the KXNO is way better because of the move that I made. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, the teams that are in place over there uh, and the people that are listening to that station right now, uh, there, there's some talented, talented people that call KXNO their radio home um, from the morning show to the afternoon show. And um, they're, they're, we're not allowed to talk about the ratings, but uh, there's more people listening to that radio station than ever before. Well, it, it, it's a testament to, to the passion that you guys have, I think, and, and the diversity of the shows and so on. I, I don't think that you, that you can, everybody has something that they like that they can listen to on the station, um, whether it's the goofiness in the morning or, the, or the, the deep sports talks, I think, that you and Trent have. I really enjoy listening to that. And then, you know, the mixture that, that, that Ross and, and Chris have as well. It's just, it's very well all overall. And then, you know, Murph and Andy is just, I think the, the gold standard, obviously. So. Yeah. There's four different, there's four different, um, you know, if you walk into, uh, you know, go to pizza, pizza restaurant, you might have the pepperoni. Tim's having the Supreme. I'm having the cheese, but it's a, it's a really good restaurant with really good pizza. Right. Um, right. It, it's different where we've got four different shows and uh, the station's doing, um, you know, the station's doing great. I'm glad to, I'm fortunate to be a part of it and grateful that they gave me another opportunity to come back and to finish my career uh, at KXNO because, you know, it's coming to an end. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you a little bit more I, because it's come up a lot for you over the last, uh, what's it been, two years since he was indicted? Yeah. Uh, right. So yeah, about two years. Exactly. Yeah. Really close. Yeah. So, so it's been an, an off and on story in central Iowa since then, you know, as each kind of, you know, not necessarily a, 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 you know, front page of the paper, but it's something that is each kind of step in the process went through. There were more updates. I'm sure that was coming up a lot more in your head and maybe you you were thinking about it a lot more than, than maybe you had for some time um i think go ahead. no go ahead i i just i i think part of me there for a while it was completely out of my mind i hadn't thought about him or 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 that whole aspect i mean i thought quite a bit about the end of my dad's business and then you know him passing away and in and, and the depression that he had after that that was always um at the forefront for me sometimes, but 
his involvement and so on, I, to be honest with you, when this story broke two years ago, I had not necessarily forgot, but I, I hadn't even given him a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to read some of the stories um, about uh, what had happened to other people and small businesses and big and big businesses and, and things like that and how bad it got. Um, and then, you know, let's be honest, uh, Ken reached out to me at some point and uh, wanted to talk to me and I welcomed it. Um, and I'm glad you did. Because I, I you know, it, I found something there when all that broke. Um, I gave a lot of lip service a long time to, to my, I would talk to my kids a lot about forgiveness and things like that and how, you know, you can hold it in your heart and, and, and you're just, at that point, you're just locking yourself in a prison when it came to anything that you wouldn't forgive somebody for. Um, but I had never really been faced with a major forgiveness thing. I mean, nobody's ever really wronged me that I had to forgive somebody for it or whatever. And um, I just remember talking to Ken and, and we had a long conversation and he was I don't know. I just remember thinking to myself, he's not worth it. Marty, not Ken. Ken's worth it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, Marty's not worth it, right? Like he's got his own demons or whatever else. And I think somebody asked me, um, I can't remember exactly. They asked me something in fact, uh, do I take any pleasure or am I, do I hope he gets what's coming to him or whatever else? And my response is always, I don't take any pleasure in somebody's pain or failure. That doesn't make mine go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just makes me think more about them. Uh, I've forgiven Marty a long time ago um, for what he did. That doesn't mean that I don't think he should be punished. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that other people have a right to not forgive him. But for me, I just don't want it to consume me. And in turn, if that means that I can now enhance a friendship that I have with Ken, and maybe him and I can do some good together, then that, then it was worth it. And if that means that I open my eyes up to, to being a better person to people, and being more trusting. And if that means that Ken out of this experience has learned to be a, a, a better person, not that he wasn't before, but I mean, we all have room to improve. Mm-hmm. Then th- th- that's, that's what you take out of that, right. Is, is the good part of it. Um, I mean, I don't, I feel like I could pick up the phone and call Ken and ask him for a favor and he would help me. Right. And I would, and I would be- hope that you would. And not because he feels he owes it to me, but because we have a shared experience and yeah. we've become friends. We have. And, um, and that's, that's my takeaway from it too, Chris, is, um, you know, something good did come out of that. And uh, that's the fact that you and I are doing this. And, you know, I remember there was, I think it was last summer out of the, I where I was driving, but I was in the country somewhere. I'm going to call Chris Shipley, see what he's doing. And, you know, I picked up the phone and, I talked to Siri and asked her to call you and she did. And um, we chatted for a while, but it's, um, 
you know, I, I, like I told you then, and I, I tell you know people, you, you were you really meant something. You moved me that day. I needed to tell my story to you to to on behalf of the people that you know we worked with in Indianola, um, because I don't I didn't want people to come away with the impression that. You know, everybody there was a bunch of crooks. No, there was one. There was one crook, and he's off the street. And unlike you, Chris, I can't forgive yet him. Maybe I'll get to a point. Like, I have no one to blame but myself for what the the career decision I made. But he ruined my reputation with so many people. So many people would have given me the shirt off their back, and they did, you know, to get us off the ground. Um, but unfortunately, if there ever comes a time that I need their shirt off their back, the, you know, I, I don't know if it'll be there again. Um, so that's, you know, the unfortunate part about it for me. But, you know, it didn't hurt me financially. Didn't uh, There was nothing like that. But, you know, how much is my reputation worth? And, you know, there's, there's, there's things that, like, for instance, you know, June 24th of 1996, 25 years you know, coming up this year that we launched sports radio in Des Moines. We were the first. No, no one could ever say that. Right. We were the first and we can't celebrate that. I can't I can't enjoy that like I should enjoy a milestone like that because of the guy that I did it with. And, you know, that disappoints me. So anyways, well, guys, I've got to watch the Drake game. I've got to talk about Drake and Mo State tomorrow. Um, Chris, I, I'm so glad that you reached out and asked me to do this with you. And Tim, it was really nice to meet you. Um, and I'm glad we did it. Yes, Ken, thank you very much for taking time to, to chat with us. I, I really appreciate it. And, and I very much appreciate your candor with all of this as well. No, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, um, you know, I was... Um, I'll do anything for Chris Shipley. I'm glad you asked, Chris. Well, the, the feeling is mutual, Ken. I, 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 as small as my platform is and as small as my voice is, there won't a day go by that if somebody asks me about Ken Miller, I won't tell him what a genuine, true friend and kind person he is. And I'll defend you to this day. Appreciate that, pal. All right. Thanks, boys. When this whole I pandemic's over, we're having drinks. Okay. <laughs> like sometime in 2022, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Thanks, fellas. All right. Good to Thanks, talk Ken. Yeah. 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 Good night. Yep. Well, Chris, that was uh, that, that was some some good honest kind of heartfelt conversations there. Uh, what are you feeling? I feel good. Uh, I, I, I always feel good when I get to talk about my dad, good and bad, good things and bad things. I, it, and I always, um, I always try to take somebody's relationship that I have with them and, 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 uh, and look at the good side. Um, you know, Ken's too um, humble, I think, um, to say a few things, but I'll, I'll say it. Um, you know, he, he reached out to me after that and we sat and had an hour conversation and the man poured his heart out and he, he took a, a pretty bad hit too. Um, 
you know, uh, his reputation and his name. And sometimes that's all you have in life is your name. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't think a lot of people knew his story. And I think a lot of people thought he was in on it and he wasn't, and he doesn't. And, and, and I'll, I'll defend it to this day, but you know, afterwards he, uh, he would allow me to come on the radio and, um, and talk about some of the, the charitable foundations that, that I'm involved in, uh, at no cost of his, you know, one of the things that I remember that he did during this pandemic and he would, you know, he's not going to toot his own horn, but his whole show there for a while during the pandemic, when everybody was shut down was dedicated to help small restaurants around town, promote their business for free on his radio station by offering them to come on and talk about what specials they had and talk about their restaurant and things like that to just help get people to take, to get takeout. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, That's awesome. uh, So things like that. uh, I, I feel great. I I really do. It's one of those times where you take a bad thing and, and you look at the good things that have come out of it. I would never wish that on anybody. And, and, you know, listen, uh, my dad, um, when we closed the business, uh, after all was said and done, um, he fell into a pretty dark, deep depression. He, uh, he had bought this huge house for my mom, uh, on the South side. I mean, it was the nicest house that my dad's ever owned. Well, I mean, he lived right next door to Roxanne Conlon. You know who that mm-hmm, is? Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you the time that he threw a cat in your yard? I'll tell you that story. No, no. All right, so I'll tell this story. All right, so Roxanne Conlon had this cat that would just run over into my dad's yard all the time and take a shit and whatever. And Taylor uh, was probably I don't know five, was visiting and she'd come in and she was crying, and Dad asked her what was wrong and the cat. She went to go pet the cat. The cat had scratched her all up on her arm. My dad walked outside, grabbed that cat, walked right over to Roxanne Conlon's house, knocked on her big door. She opened the door and he threw that cat in her house and said, if you don't keep that fucking cat out of my yard, I'm going to kill it the next time. <laughs> and that was my dad's one and only interaction with Roxanne Conlon. So that's my Roxanne Conlon story. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, and he would, um, he had that big house and he had lost his business and we, I, he didn't want to close cause he was afraid Tim of what I was going to do. Uh-huh. And really he didn't want to close cause he didn't want to close his business. It was his dream to have his own business. All right. And I said, dad, I, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. We gave it a shot. Yeah. I'll always get a job. You know, but why are we throwing more bad money after good at this point? Uh You know, and uh, there at the end, he didn't come into the store for two weeks while we were closing up. We'd have going out of business and we ended up having an auction. He couldn't even come out of his house. He was so depressed about it. And then he had he had bought this house, Tim, um, with all his money that he had. And he had bought it a couple of years before, before the business started to get bad. And he had bought it, and I think he paid like $170,000 for this five-bedroom house right on the edge of the south side of Des Moines. And 
I mean, that house now probably sells for four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, but the housing market had cra- had started to crash at that time, and that was the only money he had was in that house, and his his plan was to just live there, and then eventually sell it, take you know, a hundred two hundred thousand dollars in equity, buy a smaller house or a condo, and just him and mom retire. And he ended up having to sell that house for like a hundred and ninety thousand dollars. I think he walked out of there with enough to buy a trailer that he lived in until the day he died. And I would go over there and talk to him and be and I'm not proud of this. There were times, Tim, I couldn't even talk to my dad. Because that's all he would focus on was his failures. Sure. I'm sorry. And I, and I said, I remember, I just can't talk to him. Like I used to be able to go over and talk to him and we would talk about politics or whatever. And I'd go over and within two minutes, he'd be like, I'm, I'm, I really failed your mom. Look at this place that we're living in and I'm not going to leave her anything. And I'd be like, dad, you had a fucking eighth grade education. You put me through school. You raised three other kids. You have all these wonderful grandkids. You don't have anything to be sad about. Um, so, but he just, to the point where I wouldn't even call him or talk to him. If I call on the phone, I wouldn't want to talk to him. I'd be like, what's mom doing? Because I couldn't talk to him because it was so depressing mm-hmm. and so sad. And, and I'd get so mad at him. And now, Man, Tim, I'd give anything to talk to my dad right now. I would give anything to talk to him. I was I was upstairs like four months ago trying to fix some fucking faucet in the bathroom. I don't know. And I came downstairs and I sat there and I almost was in tears. And Stacy was like, what's the matter? And I was like, I just, I don't know. I wish I would have listened to my dad on how to fix this stuff. Or I wish I could just pick up the phone and call him because I don't, gonna know what i'm doing mm-hmm. i'm an it marketing guy trying to fix a fucking bathtub i don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> yeah um and that's why i think i just try to i always people would grow up and you would say what do you want to do for you what do you want to do in life what do you want to do i want to be you know a baseball player or whatever you know what i wanted to be i wanted to be my dad mm-hmm. i wanted to be a father and a husband and 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 be as good a father as my dad was Mm-hmm. Well, I I think we, you know, as as much as we've talked about your dad, I, I still feel like you know we've maybe scratched the surface on some of these things. Our friend um, Bill has shared that you're you're if anything underselling what a character <laughs> your dad was. So I'm glad that we're going to be able to talk about him more, and I'm glad that we are able to take this venue that we have here to be able to share some of those memories and some of those stories. I know I, I enjoy hearing those stories and hearing you talk about him. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to, to see your face while you're talking about them too. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe looking at you is, is maybe saying I'm lucky to see you. Maybe that, that might be a little generous there. It's the new, it's the new <laughs> style of beard I got going on. I'm growing a little <laughs> higher up on my face. Yeah, I I'm noticed trying, that. I'm trying to do the Tim look over here. Um, 
So here's the problem. You start to shave down, you start to shave that top, and pretty soon it gets lower and lower and lower, and pretty soon your whole fat jaw is showing. <laughs> like, man, that's not a good look at all. So I, I always I always call the the hair that kind of grows up here uh your Dustin Pedroya because cause his beard always seemed to like <laughs> right? grow directly out of his eyelids. And so I always say that, yeah, I gotta get my Dustin Pedroya under control. But that's right. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh well, I that was uh that was a really good conversation. I'm really glad that that you know, you reached out to Ken and because he had reached out to you, I'm glad that, that we got a, a chance to talk a little bit more about that. I think the, since Marty got sentenced here a few weeks ago, it's been kind of a big story, but I think sometimes people are saying, you know, you had said that, you know, people are talking about it now because it's what sells newspapers. Right. Right. Um, but that there's a real human element to all of this that maybe sometimes gets missed, that it's more about the downfall of a, I mean, the guy was known as the mouth of the Midwest, right? Like there, right. it seems that, and it's not necessarily as focused on kind of that, that human aspect. And I think it's certainly great that, that you and Ken have the relationship that, that, uh, you guys do now, boy. He really does seem like a, a a genuine, a genuine person. That's the first time I've ever gotten a chance to talk to him. But I I definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, I I, I never had a bad opinion of, of Ken before. I had a uh, a non opinion, I guess. Mm-hmm. I listened to him. I liked him. I liked him on the radio. Um, I liked his show. I liked his show when he was on with Brinson. Um, uh, and then, you know, when that whole thing went down after when he went back to Marty and he, and he supposedly left, you know, uh, didn't want to take a job because somebody was going to be his co-host or whatever. And those rumors were flying around. I, I don't know at the time that I thought that was true or not. You know, it certainly seemed that way or whatever. But after talking to him and getting to know him and knowing the story there, that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, it's just, I think what bothers me the most are people that don't know the entire story that think they do and then run their mouth online or whatever about him or about the, or about the victims the most. Yeah. That's, I think what pisses me off the most. Well, they should have known better. And how do you know, how do they not know or whatever else? Listen, the guy was able to scam people for 25 years for a reason mm-hmm. because he was fucking good at it. That's mm-hmm. why. All right. So you yeah. sitting over there and you're a little lofty, you know, thinking that you wouldn't fall for it or whatever else. Just be glad you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, you know, it's one thing to, to pull a scam off like that once. It's another thing to be able to do things like that repeatedly. Have, have it even come out in the media and still be able to do it again. You know what I mean? Yep. That's, that's to me is, is kind of the most incredible part about all of this. Um, when he got indicted a couple of years ago, I remember thinking, wait, this is the same. Like, I thought we already, we all knew this, this shit was going on. Uh, (laughs) how was he still able to do this? 
right? And I think, you know, for, for Ken, when he talks about his reputation, I'm sure there are a lot of people that look at him and say, okay, how was that going on for that long and you didn't know or you didn't enable or, you know, whatever. So I get that 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 piece of it. But, uh, man, grifters and con men uh, are successful because, of, you know, you, you use the word charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also just a, a it's it's a charisma that seems genuine. You know what I mean? So yeah. right, you know where you want to believe. So I don't know. it's 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 all a, a crazy story, and I'm I'm certain we have not heard the last of some of these things. I'm certain you know more things are going to come out i i you know he he cried at his sentencing and talked about genuine remorse but this is not the first time he's been faced you know forced to confront all of this right so you, you know you wonder you wonder what sincerity is really there well i, I at his sentence or you know when he i think in the last article it was written he said he was quoted as saying that he always tells the truth like he, to the point where I think he really believes that. Sure. Like it, it, at some level, you have to think that you're really not fucking people over to be able to do it so well for so long. Yeah. Like you've convinced yourself that you're not doing anything wrong or you've convinced yourself, no, 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 I'm really going to pay that guy back. It, it, yeah. It, you know? Probably the the best way that you can convince others is by convincing yourself first, right? Right. <laughs> so the old Seinfeld line: "It's not a lie if you believe it." Yeah, exactly. That's what George says in Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. So, ah, uh, man, I don't know. Crazy, crazy. Like I said, I, I'm sure we haven't heard the last, but I am. It's certainly been interesting to hear. You know, a lot of people feel some sense of closure. I guess with with what went down um i don't know any uh any other thoughts on that or anything else you kind of want to chat about nope <laughs> no, not on him not good. at all good good well uh good again i'm glad we got to do this we certainly have have some more things in the works so uh plenty more things to listen to we'll continue to to give our best advice to people since we are experts at life so well that's right Uh, and we'll we'll be bringing on more guests that can help share their expertise and their wisdom as well uh hopefully hopefully my tongue is as planted and firmly in my cheek as, as possible on that one but uh what are you talking about we're full of great (laughs) advice and great Full of something. We're full of something. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Well, great. Uh, Anything else you kind of want to plug or tease? Mm, Well, we have uh, in the works, uh, I have a very good friend of mine from high school that has opened up a new distillery uh, down in Osceola called uh, Revelton, uh, Rob Taylor. we're going to maybe have him on and talk about some dreams and where he started and uh, what brought him into the distillery and whiskey business. Um, so that'll be kind of fun. Uh, other than that, uh, I, I would really like to do maybe just a, 
a fun, crazy old man. Let's bring somebody on young and quiz them and see if we can educate somebody. We need to get somebody on here that's like in their mid twenties that teach them a few things. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I have a feeling we might not be doing a whole lot of the teaching as much as the learning. Uh, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, wonderful. Well, again, guys, we thank you for listening. Please check us out on Twitter at strength underscore old. Check out the Tailgate Society at Tgate Society on Twitter and thetailgatesociety.com. Again, a whole lot of great content. Uh, please listen to the other Tailgate Society podcasts, Sporks and Corks, Matinee Baseball, Culture Check, Better Units, We're Not That Drunk, uh, a whole host of other great things going on at Tailgate Society, so please check us out. You can find me on Twitter at TimJohnsonMN. Chris, you are? At SciGrad, at SciDan. So please check us out. Let us know your thoughts and we will talk to you guys next time. I don't want to get on the bandwagon. I'll burn that wagon down and join the band. Traveling troubadours terrorizing street corners just to try to get some supper in our hands. Now I waited all my life to get this off my chest screen, buddy murder until someone understands that it ain't about the money, the drugs, or the women. I make this noise just because I can. And we'll all join in to that original sin.